1: Well, you just sat through this ad that's now approaching 30 seconds. What could you say to a potential customer in 30 seconds? Let Odyssey put together a media plan tailor-made for your unique marketing needs. Advertise with Odyssey. Visit ads.odyssey.com.
2: Guidance is internal. Ignition sequence starts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 0. All engine running. Lift off. We have a lift off. Permission to board,
3: please. Permission to cover, aboard.
4: Permission to board.
3: Permission to board. Do
4: I have some permission to board that sweet mother ship?
3: This is the Permission Granted Podcast. Here's DA.
4: All right, welcome everybody inside the Permission Granted Podcast, the show about the show, the show within a show. Now, this is a very special edition of the PGP. As you know, this one is the Permission Granted Punishments. We did not have a Permission Granted Podcast last week. Which means, well, now a couple of weeks ago, which means we had to do right by the listeners. And in doing so, we let you choose our subject matter. So, coming up, you'll hear Pete the Body Bellotti talking about the new WWE with Triple H taking over for Vince McMahon. You'll hear Andrew Bogish discuss the rise and the fall of the Dave Matthews band as he's traveling across the country to go see DMB. And in this side A of side C, if you will, I'm going over retro ballparks. This is what you guys voted on through a series of polls on the show. And now you're getting what you voted for. And so my guest is a guy that hosts his own podcast about this. He has a website about it as well and posted Instagram account about it. These are the old baseball stadiums that don't exist anymore. And he's got the same nostalgia for the old as I do. So now you guys are really in trouble. Joining me <laughs> from Lost Ballparks and the Lost Ballparks podcast is Mike Kozer. Mike, how you doing? I'm great, David. How are you, man? I appreciate you having me on. Thank you. My pleasure. This is a lot of fun. And I follow you guys on social and I listen to the pod and I love the website. And so It's really cool to finally catch up. And I grew up in New York going to Shea Stadium as a Mets fan. You grew up in Cleveland going to Old Municipal Stadium before the Jake was built. You always ask everybody else what their first game was. I want to ask you what your first baseball game was. Well, it was Municipal Stadium. Yeah, it was in Cleveland. And,
0: um, man, I tell you... The thing about Municipal Stadium or Shea Stadium or some of those what people might call cookie cutter ballparks is that um, for a lot of people who weren't in the city or who weren't a fan of uh, Cleveland or a fan of the Mets, you know, they might call those ballparks soulless. But for people like you and I who were there, I mean, this was our home, right? So I can remember going with my dad and we lived about an hour south of Cleveland in a little town called Mansfield, Ohio. And so it took an yeah, hour to get up to the ballpark. We were there for three or four hours. And I can remember the smell of freshly cut grass. I can remember at Municipal Stadium how cavernous. Like, this place is enormous. I forget what it seated Like, you know, 85, 90,000, whatever it was. And at the time, uh, in the 70s, Cleveland was not very good. And uh, so, you know, you just had this expansive ballpark. And and uh, you could hear the first base uh, coach, You could hear the third base coach, you know, shouting instructions to the players. In fact, there was one time I went to a game that I had a friend who sat in the upper deck on the third base side. I sat in the upper deck on the first base side and I yelled his name and he yelled back and we could hear each other. And I'm thinking, I'm thinking, you know what, this this could only happen in Cleveland. And it you know, was it was it a beautiful ballpark? No, but it was our ballpark. Right. And I'm sure you feel the same way about Shea Stadium. You know, the the smells were you know, you got the freshly cut grass, the popcorn, the hot dogs. That was great. But in the concourse, you know, it, it smelled like pee a lot of times. I mean, yeah, it just sure did. But uh, but we loved it. And, and I'm, I man, I missed that ballpark so much. And, you know, to have my dad with me um, for like six, seven hours, you think of the drive up being there the whole time, the drive back, his undivided attention. That was a day at the ballpark. Uh, was fantastic and just
4: provides for me, at least personally, some of the best memories of my childhood. Mm, That's good insight. It's interesting because even growing up in New York, one of the things I was drawn to when I was young, about seven, eight, nine years old, was Browns games on TV at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. And I talk about this quite a bit on the show that when I'm seven, eight, nine years old, the Browns are really good in the late 80s. And the dog pound is pure theater. I mean, when you're a kid and people are wearing dog masks and they're, yeah. eating, they're <laughs> eating milk bones, right. and the Browns were always good, they were always in the playoffs, so there's Kosar and Mac and Binder and what have. And I'm just like, this is amazing. These, these human beings are eating dog bones. And then the stadium itself, was so captivating because it was so large and cavernous and dark. And, you know, right. when you're watching Browns games in January, it's already going to be dark, but it gets dark at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And it just seemed like out of a movie. So there there was something, even though it was, you know, I'm sure decrepit and falling apart in the eighties by that time, my goodness, there was just something about the theater of that place that seemed magical. Oh yeah. You know, you look at the ballpark, uh, uh, and and it, it was not glitzy. Obviously,
0: it wasn't fancy in any regard, but it, it had a blue collar feel just like the city. And so you went in when you went in there, it felt like Cleveland. And, um, you know, and I, I think I speak for, for most folks who grew up in that area. Um,
4: you know, we miss it and uh, and we loved it. So, I've been to a series of ballparks that no longer exist, not the old ones like Ebbets Field or the Polo Grounds. Those are obviously before both my time and your time, but some of the newer ones, you know, here in New York, both Shea and new old Yankee Stadium got demolished, and now there's City Field and new Yankee Stadium. I wanted to go over some lists of the stadiums you've been to that no longer exist anymore. I went to an, a series of the cookie-cutter, multi-purpose ones that were torn down, but not for baseball. I went to Three Rivers for a Steelers game. I went to yeah. the Vet for an Eagles game. And I went to Old Bush Stadium back after the football Cardinals had left before they built new Bush Stadium. All of those sucked. I mean, basically, not, none of them had anything very redeeming about them. But did you go to any of those old parks that were the cookie cutters and, and remember them fondly. You know what I, uh, Riverfront, um, cause I went to college in Kentucky. So
0: I remember going to games at Riverfront stadium in Cincinnati and watching the Reds play. And, uh, it's, it wasn't so much about the ballpark. It's what happened in the ballpark. Uh, the big red machine, you know, you think of Pete Rose and Joe Morgan and Johnny bench and so many great teams, um, that play there so many great moments. Uh, I can remember in college uh, convincing my roommate that we would should drive up for uh, I forget what was it maybe ninety one when they played the Pirates in the uh, playoffs and I convinced a kid to drive us up there because we didn't have a car and drive around the stadium the whole game while we were in the game.
4: No, and yeah,
0: yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> so I I have moments like that of that ballpark that make it special to me. But I mean, obviously it was nothing. It was nothing great. I you know when we were kids we would drive from Ohio to Florida and we would drive past Riverfront Stadium on the way to Florida and you could see it from the freeway and I remember thinking as a little five six year old oh my gosh that's where Johnny Bench lives that's where mm. that's where Pete Rose lives so mm. it had it had a special place in my heart but you're right once you get in I mean it looked like the vet it looked like Three River Stadium
4: it looked like any of the other ballparks that were built around that time so I once went to the Metrodome, not only for a Vikings game, but I did see two Twins games for the Metrodome. And I walked into that ballpark on a beautiful midsummer, you know, Minneapolis night. And it's miserable and cold for so much of the year. And then it's this gorgeous summer night in Minnesota. And I'm going inside for a baseball game. I said, this is the stupidest <laughs> thing ever. I can't right. believe they play baseball inside this place. And it was dark and cavernous and echoey and soulless. And I'm going, who thought this was a good idea? Now, I've been to Target Field for a tour, not for a game, because we were there when the Final Four was there before they started playing uh, the regular season. But had you ever been to any of the dome stadiums uh, in baseball? That one never made much sense to me. Yeah, the Metrodome um
0: reminds me. It reminded me a lot of what we uh, have. You been to the Tropic, the Trop down in Tampa? Yeah, yeah that's true. You terrible, know, I, I was I was just there a couple of weeks ago, and I, I, man, I'm thinking as I'm walking through the concourse, I'm in an office building. Yeah. Like the concourse is carpeted, so it feels like <laughs> it, it feels like you're not at a ball game. It felt like I was walking to uh to a meeting with the boss or something. It, it, yeah, it felt weird. And the Metrodome, in a lot of ways, felt similar. You're right. So on a On a beautiful summer day, you're inside this air-conditioned. I would have loved to have gone to the Astrodome. I didn't make it to the Astrodome just because that was kind of the first. And players who were there talk about um, just how enormous it was and how different at the time. And if you grew up in Houston in the summers, uh, I mean, having air conditioning during a baseball game was a welcome, a welcome thing. I mean, they played at Colt Stadium before that. And, you know, people talk about mosquitoes the size of your hand. And it being, in fact, they they some parts of Colt Stadium had folding chairs. So imagine a hundred and five hundred and six <laughs> degree heat, sitting your butt down on a on a metal folding chair to try to watch a game. Yeah, no thanks. That's yeah. so that prob- great. Yeah, I, yeah, just I went to. The... It, yeah, they probably would have taken the soullessness of the Astrodome in exchange for
4: for a little cool. I went to the trop once or twice when I worked in Florida. And it really felt like I was watching baseball in a Costco. I'm like, this does not feel like a baseball stadium at all. Now, I I realized that this was about 15 years ago. And since they've dolled it up a little bit. They've splashed a few coats of paint on there. They put the the actual sting rays out in center field in the glass tank. So I guess it might be a little bit more personality-driven now. Is it, is it any better today than it was when it first opened for the Rays? No. You know, the only thing I liked about it
0: was that when we went uh, two, three, four weeks ago, it, um, there was a thunderstorm uh, with lightning that was happening. And it, that was kind of cool to be inside and hear rain falling on the roof while baseball was being ah. played. Yeah. And it was loud. And I thought, wow, okay, that's something different. That That's something I'd never experienced at a baseball game before.
4: Yeah. It's so weird that we had an entire generation of baseball played in football ballparks. But, you know, the late 60s, early 70s are all about utilitarian purposes and engineering and structural, uh, you know, multi-use. Um, I thought the one ballpark that did it okay was when the football Cardinals left St. Louis and then they made that baseball only and they knocked down the seats up in the upper deck of center field. They put the flag poles up there for the championships. They put the retired numbers kind of in play a little bit, and they retrofitted it enough to where it felt, and they put grass down. They ripped out the old artificial turf. That was, to me, the best job that a multi-purpose stadium did hosting baseball. Yeah, I, I think that which stadium um, out of all of those, if you had to pick
0: one where you thought which one has the most character – Uh, and which one feels like baseball, it would be, yeah, I agree with you. It would be in St. Louis. Although I will say uh, another ballpark that was built around the same time as some of those other cookie cutters, maybe a little before, was the K in
4: Kansas City. Have you ever been to to a a, a Royals game in Kansas City? Yeah, I actually worked in Kansas City for nearly five years, so I went to a lot of Royals games, yeah. Yeah, and that's a great place to watch a ballpark. And I appreciate the fact that you can kind of get in easily.
0: You've got this giant parking lot you can get out. I like the fountains in center field. Um yeah, th- there's some there's some really neat history that goes along with the ballpark. So I talked to Frank White, uh All-Star legend, second baseman for the Royals for many years a, f- a few weeks ago and he mentioned that they are talking about replacing it at some point and I was kind of sad about
4: that. I hope that they don't, but
0: you know, life yeah. goes on,
4: I guess. The fountains are iconic and the big uh the big crown scoreboard is iconic and uh I'm with you. It's it's one of those underrated ballparks that have been. It was built around the same time, but they did something smart in Kansas City. Arrowhead was for football, right? The K was for baseball. They didn't mix the two, and you thus know what? they got two really good ballparks out of you
0: it. You know what? Though there was talk at the very beginning when they were constructing that ballpark, I forget who the owner was at the time of of the Chiefs. Was it uh, back Lamar there, Hunt? Okay, yeah. yeah. So there was some talk that they would actually have a retractable roof that would go between the two. Yeah. So, so the, you could use it either for Arrowhead or for uh, the, the K. I know. I, I think it became too cost prohibitive. They were like,
4: eh, okay, that's not going to,
0: there's, you know, really no yeah. way to make it, that happen.
4: It, it feels like a grand space age concept of 1968 that when in, in reality, they're like, yeah, we can't make this work. It's, it looks good on a model, but it doesn't really work. It's not going to really work. We could pull out
0: a Lego set and try to construct <laughs> that, but like in practical reality, that's probably yeah. not going to happen.
4: So I'm wondering, you know, you speak to these former players. I mean, you've had Ripken on, Frank White on. You've had all these really unbelievable Hall of Fame players. When you get a hold of them and you're like, "Hey, what I want to do is talk about your old ballpark," are All of them? Like, yeah, that's a great idea. Or does it take some selling? Because I I don't imagine many players are as nostalgic about ballparks as you and I are. Yeah, there are some that that are not. um, And some who are not
0: interested. I got a call a couple weeks ago. I was so excited because I had been working for months to try to get Sandy Koufax to come on the podcast. Oh, wow. And uh, so I had his number. Just in case it would ring, I would know who it was. You know, it's labeled Sandy Koufax. And then one day, phone starts ringing and it says sandy koufax i'm like you have got to freaking be kidding me sandy koufax no. the gr- i mean arguably oh. the greatest pitcher of all time is calling me yeah. so so it but it's funny to go from the height of euphoria that he's calling you to what happened next uh so with like 10 seconds you could have the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and he was calling just to tell me he couldn't do the interview like he mm. was, and you know sandy koufax if you know anything about him he's an intensely private guy you look back over the last 40, 50 years, he has done a handful of interviews and mostly with people like Vince Scully. He just doesn't do them. He's yeah. not interested. He's not, he's not interested in talking about his career, about baseball, about any of it. He just doesn't want to. So he was nice enough guy. He just called and said, hey, Mike, um, I appreciate you reaching out. I just wanted to let you know that I'm, I'm not nice. going to be available to do the podcast. And I Aww. thought, well, what, what a sweet guy to even call. <laughs> and, and, you know, speaking of that, Another sweet guy. Well, I, at the very top of my wish list was Vin Scully, right? Mm-hmm. I wanted Vince so bad. Back in November of last year, he started following Lost Ballparks, and I can remember the day he did. I was running around the house like screaming. I couldn't believe it. I was hugging my wife. Vin Scully's following Lost Ballparks. What a great, <laughs> what a great moment! And so I began to develop a, a conversation with him and his people about. I said, "Hey, look, I'm I'm developing this podcast. Um, I would love for you to come on." Now, at this point there is no podcast. I'm just thinking about it. And there are, obviously there's no audience. Uh, there's nothing to show him. Hey, this is our, this is our reach. This is who we're going after nothing. And, and yet his people, yeah, he's interested. He wants to do the podcast. And I'm like, wow. Ooh, you gotta be kidding me. So we were literally a couple days away from locking in a date. And at that point, his health took a turn for the worse. Uh-huh. And we, we could never figure it out. But I thought, okay, wow, what a sweet, generous guy uh, Vince Gully was. To consider doing a podcast with someone who has no notoriety and there are, you know, there are zero episodes at that point to point to and say, hey, this is actually going to be a good thing and it would be, might be fun for you to come on. Um, yeah, I just thought that was really
4: generous and it, and it, really, it really made a mark. Hmm. Wow, that does say a lot about him. You had Bob Costas on the latest episode of the Lost Ball- Ballparks podcast. And I was cracking up. I mean, it was bittersweet, but I was kind of cracking up at the fact that he said his first time going to Old Yankee Stadium, you could exit through the center field bleachers from walking the, the warning track. And so you would walk by the old monuments, old Monument Park and Center Field. And he looked down at Miller Huggins and Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and started crying. And his dad said, what are you crying about it? He goes, well, this is where they're buried. And his dad had to tell him, no, 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 this is not where they're buried. (laughs) This this is just their monuments. They are dead. They are not buried, though, under the warning track of the Yankee Stadium. I couldn't believe that. That was so funny. Yeah,
0: right. Yeah, but as a kid, you think that must be where, yeah, you know, I see right. the, uh, what looks like a tombstone. This looks like a graveyard, and this is where, and at the time, I think Costas was a huge Mickey Mantle fan, and so he began to think about, wow, one day, my hero will be buried here, and he, yeah, he literally started crying, and it took, it took a while for his dad to console him, but man, Bob Costas was so good on the podcast. He Here's a guy who's won, I don't know, 29 Emmys. You think about the stuff that Bob Costas has done in his life. NBA Finals, Super Bowls, how many Olympics, World Series, uh, the Kentucky Derby. I mean, and then, then what I love about him is that he's got this encyclopedic knowledge of baseball. And, and by the way, I had forgotten how closely he was linked to the 1988 World Series and that uh, impossible moment where Kirk Gibson, you know, hits that home run in game one. Yeah. Uh, all the drama surrounding it uh, provided us, with, obviously, one of the greatest moments in baseball history. And as good as Vince Scully was... His call during that game, it was a masterpiece. But that moment probably doesn't happen without an assist from Bob Costas. And we talk about that in the
4: podcast. And it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Yeah, I encourage the listeners here to go check out the Lost Ballparks episode with Costas because you're right, it's phenomenal. And, you know, I think about all those old ballparks, the ones that are featured in a lot of your your logos and uh, your website, like Crosley Field in Cincinnati shy Park, its Polo Grounds, all these, all these cool places. What's the one throughout history that you wish they didn't knock down, that you wish was still up? Kind of like Wrigley or Fenway. Well, if I had to pick two,
0: I would say the Polo Grounds would be one, just because of its crazy dimensions. There's a ballpark that was shaped like a bathtub, 279 feet down left field line, like 260 down right, 483 to center. Oh my the, gosh! The clubhouses were in center field. Players would have to hold on to their hats as they climbed the clubhouse steps and center because fans would lean over the railing to try to take them. There were so many unique aspects about uh, the polo grounds. I love all the little details. There was a giant Chesterfield cigarette mounted above the clubhouse in center field. Bob Costas talked about that. That would emit puffs of smoke. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen today. And my favorite, my favorite thing about the polo grounds, the groundskeeper Matty Schwab had an apartment underneath the left field stands. Oh, my god! And his son would have sleepovers on the weekend with oh. he and his friends would set up a tent in the outfield, the same <laughs> outfield where Willie Mays makes that incredible over-the-shoulder oh catch of the goodness. 1954 World Series. I mean, it's every kid's dream to live in a ballpark. So, for me, it would be the polo grounds. Ebbets Field would be a close, you know, like 1B uh, or 2, you know, a second for me. Yeah. yeah, either one of those.
4: Yeah, I think... Yeah, Ebbets would probably be my number one as well, because my parents remember going to Ebbets before they tore it down to the 50s. And I'm I'm always, you know, you, if you if you grow up in Brooklyn or you're in New York City and you go by that place, there is no sense there was ever a ballpark there. There are right. apartment building complex that called the Ebbets Field Apartments. But I mean, you would just have no sense of a ballpark being there. So. That would be really cool. Do you go to Fenway or Wrigley? And I was just at Dodger Stadium for the first time this summer, and I just I loved it. Do you go to those old, ball- old ballparks and and feel the magic the same way um, because you're so nostalgic and and retro-vibing about old ballparks?
0: Oh, yeah. You can't help but think when you go into Fenway, this is where Ted Williams played, you know? This is where Carl Yastrzemski played. We've got Rico Petroselli coming up in Season 3 of the podcast And I'm, you know, he's got these great moments in uh, 67 and 75. In fact, uh, on that particular podcast, he talks about before the 67 season, that miraculous 67 season, that there was some real talk that either Tom Yawkey would move the team out of Boston or they would tear down Fenway Park. Wow. It it is one of the most incredible episodes. And I honestly, it was hard for me to ask questions in that interview because I was so mesmerized and spellbound and it he almost like he had to wake me up at certain points and say, Hey, do you have another question? I'm like, yeah, I'm still thinking about what you just said that Fenway might not be here. Had it not been for that season. Um But yeah, at Wrigley field, same thing. And by the way, Janet Marie Smith, who's the EVP of planning and development for the Dodgers has done a remarkable job preserving the history at Dodger stadium. Uh, you were there. You said this summer.
4: Yeah. Yeah. yeah about a month ago.
0: That, that ballpark um, has such a cool feel. And, and again, giving the modern amenities that people have come to expect. And yet uh, having this little piece of um, history,
4: she's done a great job of of preserving that at that ballpark. It was remarkable on TV. You don't really get the magic of Dodger stadium. It looks cool. And the sun sets over the mountains and you're going, okay, you know, that's, it's great, but I I don't think you can get a sense of truly how magical it is unless you go there. And when I went there, I was truly, Spellbound is a good word. I just said, boy, this is truly magical. And it's funny. I went up to Boston, boy, early on in uh, in college, freshman year, maybe even the year that we graduated high school in 96 or 97. And there were at that point bumper stickers that said, save Fenway Park. And there was a real movement of potentially knocking down Fenway to modernize it. And now you would never do that 25 yeah. years later because it's such a it's such a draw because it's old, but I'm, I'm so thankful that Wrigley and Fenway and, to a lesser degree, Dodger Stadium survived those um, those years because now I don't think they'll ever knock them down. Those three are worth too much money because they're old.
0: Yeah, but you, you think about what happened in the last 20 years, though, to some great ballparks that we, I wish had, had uh, been afforded the same opportunity, Tiger Stadium. I
4: know, You know,
0: so you look at what's there now. We gave up Tiger Stadium Mm-mm. for where they're playing now. And I think they've got the flagpole that was at Tiger Stadium is still kind of in the same general location where the Police Athletic League play in Detroit. They kind of recreated a, or not recreated, but they built a field there. Um, but, it, you know, uh, that, one, that one stings a lot for me because Tiger Stadium, man, where Ty Cobb play, Al Kaline, Mark the Bird Fidrich uh, in those matches yeah. in the mid-70s. I mean... That, that one was tough. Comiskey park was tough too. And I get that those parks had become decrepit, but you know, so we gave up Comiskey for guaranteed rate field. (laughs) I mean, you know, Comiskey where Joe Jackson played. Uh, Yeah. That, that, uh, that's tough. I wish there was something that we could have done to retrofit or add the modern amenities, but yet keep those ballparks because those, those will be missed for a long, long time.
4: Yeah, no, I'm with you on, on that. And, uh, I went to Tiger Stadium. It's final season. Only one time ever. I went in 99 and I got a press credential through my student radio station. And so I got to go to the press box where Ernie Harwell called all those games and it hung from a rafter with a cable system. And I'm just like, this feels so archaic and prehistoric, but this is so cool. And I don't want to see this knocked down. And unfortunately, as you said, it was knocked down and Comerica looks nice, but It ain't Tiger Stadium. No, it's not.
0: And, you know, John Miller was on the podcast. John Miller's the uh, play-by-play voice, for those who don't know, for the Giants. And has been on Sunday Night Baseball with Joe Morgan for many, or did that for many, many years. Uh, I think his broadcast career is 50 years, something like that. And so he was on at Season 1, Episode 6. And John talked about the first time he went to Tiger Stadium in the early 70s, like maybe 74, 75. To get into the broadcast booth at Tiger Stadium, they had to open a hatch There was a hatch that they had to actually climb down. And he said, like, every couple of innings, someone would open the hatch and lower down hot dogs or drinks. Oh, my God. And so I love that. So was it the most comfortable? No. But where else are you going to get that?
5: You know?
4: (laughs) That is incredible. But all these cool memories are captured so well on your podcast and on your Instagram account and on your website. It's lostballparks.com. The podcast is Lost Ballparks Pod. And then on Instagram, it's at Lost Ballparks as well. And Mike Kozier is the host. And I just love it because I'm filled with nostalgia and sports the same way that you are. So I love that you've done this. I love the work that you put into it. I love the guests that you get. And uh, this is really cool to catch up. Season three, when you had Costas on, was that the start of season three or the end of season two?
0: That was the end of season three. Yeah. Uh, beginning, I'm sorry. The, that was the premiere of season three yesterday. So okay. yeah. Yeah, so cool. we're just getting started. Ten, 10 episodes in season three and a, a lot to come.
4: All right, so Costas, look for Costas as the first episode of season three. More episodes to come from Lost Ballparks and you can catch up on the previous two seasons as well. All places that podcasts are available. Mike, this is awesome, man. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. And uh, thanks for the support. Me so much. Yeah, my pleasure. That's Mike Kozier of Lost Ballparks coming up next as part of the Permission Granted Punishments. You've got Pete the Body Bilotti talking Triple H era in the WWE. So stick around. That's right now.
2: Welcome to a very special edition of the PGP. This is Pete the Body Bilotti as we talk about the transition in WWE as the legendary promoter Vince McMahon has announced his retirement. And has stepped aside, opening the door to his daughter, Stephanie McMahon, to become a co-CEO, and Triple H to take over the creative side of WWE, which will always be the most scrutinized of the whole process, considering the legacy Vince has left. And as we all know, Vince McMahon involved in a lot of legal issues, which has which may many people believe led to his retirement. And... Now, Triple H has had maybe about a month running WWE Creative and bringing back people from NXT that he had once coached and once worked with when he was running that part of WWE. So to, here to talk about it and to uh, go through the whole thing with me is my friend and fellow wrestling nut and aficionado, Kurt Semder of News 12. Kurt, Welcome.
5: Hey, Keith, how are you? Nice to talk to you again. Having uh, spoken to you about this, uh, what, what was it, WrestleMania, I think, one of those years we, we did this last, so it's good to be back with you.
2: That's right, yes. Uh, and I, I thought you would be the be a great uh, person to have on about this because we've discussed in the past creative and, and creative has become very much a sore spot for a lot of people watching WWE. But oh, yeah. But first, let's start with the Vince side of it. When you heard Vince McMahon was retiring, your initial reaction was?
5: It's a storyline. It's a work. Uh-huh. It's going to be its something that they're going to – it can't possibly be real. I mean, you know, Vince has been in charge of uh, WWE's creative and WWE's operations for only you know, four decades, if not longer. And for him to not be involved uh, in that operation anymore uh, – was unfathomable i mean it just seemed like something that couldn't even remotely happen i think we all just assumed that you know vince was going to run that company until the day he died and uh it it just for that not to be the case it was incredible now on the flip side of things immediately i think myself i know myself and i'm sure a lot of other wrestling fans started thinking well what's going to be next who's going to be running this who's going to do things because you got to remember, you know, it wasn't too long ago that we assumed things were going to transition to Stephanie, his daughter, and to Triple H, uh, his son-in-law. But things changed over the last year, whether it, was, whether it was Triple H's health scare that resulted in him needing to take a step back, whether it was Stephanie uh, taking some time off. She was taking a leave. She was away from it mm-hmm. to focus on her family and other things. So they were out of the picture. So there was some real uncertainty there. This wasn't just an automatic move and transition. But once it happened and once the announcement started rolling in, I think then people started to get excited. I know I did, got excited about what was going to be coming next. So Me too. I think there were a lot of emotions, there was a lot of feeling, and there was just a little bit of a roller coaster during that time for fans, anyway, of WWE, thinking, you know, there's been a lot of calling, obviously, for years of, you know, let Vince, like, let some other people do something. Creative got stale. The story started getting either repetitive or silly or childish and maybe it was time for a new voice. And I think that fans kind of went through that roller coaster with them to the point where they were now over the last couple of weeks, which I think has been excitement and optimism.
2: I think Vince got set in his ways, and he, he's a guy that's always set in his ways. But I felt like in the past when you had guys like Vince Russo in creative when you had Brian Gewurz in creative, when you had different guys when Pat Patterson was there full-time, uh, you had different voices that, that lent the opposite opinion to Vince and Vince relied on him and, and I think at this point he was just getting he had Bruce Prichard uh, with him and I think he was getting a lot of the same things he was saying in his ear thus leading to really dull pro, uh, really dull product and uh, I think he got very defensive with the whole legal thing so and, and I think that led to a lot of just non-focus on the actual in-ring product but you mentioned it too with with Triple H taking over you get that sense of, you know, optimism in terms of creativity. Something that something new is coming, and I think in wrestling you need to have something that's a little different. Um, now with Triple H involved and Triple H running the show, which was a shock to me, to be honest with you, I thought I thought once he got cleared out of NXT and with all his guys getting let go, that you had a uh, that Triple H was not going to be involved in anything that day to day, but it, we were proven wrong. And for the last month, it's been something just really something to look forward to every week. Um, What do you see with triple H moving forward in terms of his creativity? Is there something there that you think it's going to be more focused on that wasn't with Vince?
5: Well, you know, it's funny. I I think we all worried and got uh, a little upset when we saw all of those guys being released and let go. Over the last couple of months and over the last year or so, you know, people that either failed on the main roster when they came up or people that Vince just didn't have something for, or we just, you know, didn't work out and we saw them go to other companies or do other things. And I actually think it's kind of now in retrospect, you know, because it's nice to be able to look back and look at it this way in hindsight, it's worked out much better for them because, you know, Triple H, instead of just simply calling people up, from NXT, which would have been what would have happened here, right? You would assume that had everything gone normal, you oh, just wow. call people up from NXT. Mm-hmm. instead of just doing that, we're not just getting call-ups from NXT, we're getting returns of people who it's an actual surprise to see a Kross and cross and Scarlet come back, a hit row come back you know people who were let go were not working for the company anymore
2: They to Lewis. come back
5: and return something that you know aew has done very successfully almost done too much if you ask me oh they've but done that's way too whole, much you, you know but i'm saying too many surprises too many returns too many debuts it comes too much but now the way triple h has been kind of doing this over the last couple of weeks and they're creative in the sense of you know there's a one return a show or one return a week it seems important it seems like a big deal what I like most about what they've done with the returns being returning people so far is they come back and then they are immediately put into something. There's no, they're here. And then we forget about them for three weeks. So, you know, that and the groups and they make sense what I'm liking so far and what I'm seeing so far, there's a lot of interconnected stories that are working. There's a lot of mid card and tag team focus. The women's division is getting a lot more focused. We're not just focusing on the main, you know, there's like, There used to be, in WWE, there'd be two or three main stories or main title things or main programs and things that Pete would talk about, and everything else would just kind of happen. Hmm. Everything now seems to be kind of connected and working together. There's a story that runs throughout the whole show, the last couple of shows, which is very difficult to do on a three-hour Monday Night Raw. But, you know, there's something to keep you there throughout the whole show. There seems to be a better fluidity to what they're doing there. And most importantly... And again, I, it, there does seem to be a renewed focus on the wrestling. We're getting good matches. We're getting fresh matchups. We're not getting the same match three weeks in a row, which was a staple under the Vince times, where you'd have you know one guy would fight, the next, and next then they the other half of the Whoa. tag teams would fight the next week, and then the tag team. Would fight. It was just so repetitive. You couldn't you, you could watch one Monday Night Raw, you wouldn't have to watch another one for three weeks because right. it'd be the same matches. People
2: said he forgot. So, People said he forgot yeah. uh, what he was actually booking.
5: But you know what it is? Most importantly, I think the st- the narrative around WWE has changed. And I think that's the biggest thing, because for wrestling, you know, what it all boils down to is you got your core wrestling fan base that's going to watch these shows. And the 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 idea and the feeling out there was, you know, AEW is the fun company where they do things they do, you know, all these new things and these these uh, entertaining shows and whatever, and WWE is doing the same show they've been doing for 20 years. That's not the case now. Nope. Now it's like you got to watch what Triple H is going to do. Who knows what he's going to change, H- what's ha- going to happen. The right. wrestlers are happy. Things are going well. And over on the other side, let's, we could talk about that another time. But the point is <laughs> WWE's got a, new, whole, a whole new kind of attitude towards them, and I think it's going to work in their favor.
2: Well, I think also the fact that Triple H was in the ring, I think that's, oh, a, yeah. that's a big deal. Because, I mean, Tony Khan uh, hasn't been in the ring, but he's had, he has an edge. They see, both of them have, edge, have an edge. Tony Khan one way and Triple H another. But it'll be interesting to see how the guy who hasn't been in the ring works, works against the guy who has been in the ring and has booked before. So that, that's an interesting dynamic that I'm looking forward to.
5: And don't forget who where the influence comes from there. You know, Vince obviously was heavily influenced by his father, but he had his own vision of what he wanted to do. And he was constantly booking and putting out their show in that vision of what he wanted over 30, 40 years. Right. Triple H is heavily influenced by, you know, uh, Mid-Atlantic wrestling and these, what he watched as a kid growing up, NWA, all that stuff. So he's got that. Sp- but at the same time, that's not to say he's not heavily influenced by Vince and WWE. So I think there's a real good opportunity. I think that's what we were seeing in you know, NXT black and gold at their, at their peak, a merging of those two styles to a point where you had a program that kind of had a little bit for everybody. And look, I, I think the future is really bright. There's still a lot of big names out there that either are going to want to come back to the company, have stated they're going to come back, they want to come back, or contracts are running up, whatever you have. There's a lot to be excited about with, with what he could do right there. Uh, who can come back and who can work. And I also think they've got, look, the writing staff, we've heard for years, right, that it was, you just have to basically please Vince. Mm-hmm. They write something that like Vince is going to like so that it makes it on TV. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think Triple H has given these guys a chance to see if something's going to work. And I think that's why we're seeing such different stuff on on TV right now. And so far it's working.
2: And I think these guys are going uh, to, these, these talents are going to be able to uh, to speak off the top of their heads, which I think they were everything was too scripted it, it, a little more of a, of a natural flow in terms of promos. I think that's very important. You, especially we talk about triple H and his influences. Dusty Rhodes was one of them. And he was a, he was teaching those promo classes over in NXT. So I, I, I think it, the future is bright. WWE is fun again. I I, I would say, and we yeah. would both would say, but, um, but, Talk, talk about in terms of the continuity. I'm going to go back to what you were talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I always thought Vince Russo did very well, and that was give everybody a, a role. And it looks like Triple H is doing the same here, uh, and which will lead to more stars. And when you look at uh, Triple H run WWE, there's a potential for many more stars from a, from a type of philosophy where everyone gets a, a crack at things.
5: Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at something like uh, when you when you look at the old, day, they would focus on what they would focus on your 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 champion and the contender. Mm -hmm. And that would be it. The challenger. That would be it. I mean, that that was. But the point is, if you only make two or three people important, then by definition, everybody else isn't important. And that's how it kind of came off to the fans over the years. Now, you know, what I loved, what really said to me, this is going to be different. And it wasn't just because he debuted and they brought back Harry and Cross and they brought him back. In his, you know, actual gimmick that was working in NXT with Scarlett and the whole entrance and everything, which I still think was, I still don't understand how they messed that up the first time. Mm-hmm. But what I liked most about that was they brought him out while another story was still playing out. You know, Roman Reigns and Drew McIntyre are set for a big title match in Scotland coming up this month. That's still happening. Right. But here's all of a sudden a new contender being introduced into the mix. Who's going to be? Uh They're waiting to be there whenever somebody comes out on the other side. We're already looking ahead a couple of weeks. I like that. It gives you something to look forward to. And again, to what you just said with that, bringing somebody back like that, putting him into a character that works and making him immediately important. You know, they brought Bailey. Bailey comes out with her group at SummerSlam. They immediately seem important and a threat to everybody over there. So I think they're they're definitely doing the part of making guys Tommaso Champa finally seems important again. No. They're making guys seem important who should be important because again, if you're gonna watch a wrestling show for three hours, you can't watch three guys for three hours. They were trying to do that. No. <laughs> they were trying to get you right. You'd watch. You'd watch. You'd sit there and you'd go, oh, okay, well, uh, I guess this is exciting for fast three. Forward, hours, I guess fast but,
2: forward. Right. Watch no, no, on no,
5: the now you can't do that because now you need to watch. You need to watch the backstage segments. Mm-hmm. You need to go. Well, why is that car crashed in the background? <laughs> what is Dexter Loomis doing running around? What is the heck is happening back there? Right. And I like that it's real. I like that people are kind of walking backstage and interacting with each other, or just like walking past each other and exchanging a glass. That's how it should be. Instead yeah. of this weird, like, staged area that's just constantly like, you know, looks like a more of a set than it does underneath an arena. So, look, they're doing a lot of positive things. And I think also the other thing you got to remember, Pete, is there is that era, that honeymoon time where, like, I don't think Triple H or them can do any wrong. I think he's got to go in a couple of weeks and maybe a couple of months of that if he can keep this going. But at some point, people are going to want to see some real changes and some real stuff happening. And I think it's going to come. I'm not, I have no doubt that it's going to happen. But, you know, it, so far he's off to a really great start. Everything's been pretty positive, wouldn't you say?
2: Yeah, I, I would. I, I'm I'm looking forward to SmackDown. I'm looking forward to Raw. Anything that, that they're putting out, I'm ready. I'm ready to watch. Even NXT, because you know, you know, oh, yeah. it's gonna be different. You know, it's gonna be something to look forward to. Something's gonna happen that's gonna be not the norm from the previous week. Um, now, I'm gonna put you on the spot. Last question. Sure. Take one talent, one talent within the next year that's gonna be a star under the Triple H regime, and that talent would be.
5: Under the Triple H
2: regime, one year. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'll start. You go. I'm gonna say Cody. It's an easy one, but I'm gonna say Cody. I think the push was already heading to the moon. I think with Triple H there, I think it's gonna go even more so because he's gonna be allowed to do a lot of things that he wants to do.
5: You know, we talked about that a lot. We talked about with Cody. I've been talking with other people too. Wrestling fans were worrying, like, oh God, is Cody gonna get his push derailed now? You know, because of the back history of Triple H and smashing the throne and I don't think so I think Triple H is first of all there's any personal feelings there I don't think there are to begin with secondly Triple H is too smart pardon the joke but he'll do what's best for business and right now (laughs) Cody Rhodes in a main event push against Roman Reigns whether it's at a Wrestlemania if they can't get the rock or post Wrestlemania if they can get the rock is the money match that's the big match they've got left on their card right now the deck they've got is Cody Rhodes against Roman for the belt I would do it at the Garden, and that's where I'd have Cody beat him. But that's just beside my – that's my own – that's a separate thing. Um, I like – I'll give you two. I'll give you – Karrion Kross is the one I was mentioning right before because I think he's on his way right now, and he's a guy who Triple H has always wanted to push to the moon. So I think he's going to push him right now. I think uh, Tommaso Ciampa got a guy who's going to get a big push under Triple H. I could see him being a star with perhaps a returning Johnny Gargano and maybe bring that tag team back together and put them – do something with them. Uh, the last one I'm just going to tell you is, I, you know, the whole women's division is going to look better. That's oh, yeah. what I really will, will tell you. I think, the whole, I, think, I think he's going to refocus a women's division that has a lot of talent, but I think over the last couple of years kind of got a little bit, uh, they lost their focus. You know, they introduced tag team titles on both NXT and on the main roster. They had the two championships. There was Ronda Rousey mixed in here and there. We had a lot of the same people doing things, the whole Sasha Banks uh, and Naomi thing. There's a lot going on there. I think he's going to get everybody back onto the same page here and really focus that women's division up. And I think it's going to be really strong once they get everybody on the right page. So I think Triple H has a lot of star potential if he wants to do this the right way. It's going to take some time. I think people got to be patient, but I like what he's doing so far. And I think they're going in the right direction. You know, nothing's going to be the same like under Vince. But it's going to be different, and I think that's
2: a good thing. Kurt Semder of News 12. Uh, as we give the whole lay of the land in WWE lands, with everything going on with Vince leaving and Triple H taking over creative. Kurt, it's been fun, and it's going to be a fun year, and, and then some in WWE. Thanks a lot. You got to peep anytime, And that's Kurt Semder. And uh, coming up next on the next part of Side C, it's Bogus. He's talking about... Uh, the best and worst, or maybe worst, of the Dave Matthews Band. Take it away, Bogus.
6: Man, this is weird, starting one of these without Sean babbling, yelling syllables and words to intro me into side B of the PGP. This, of course, is side C. It's me, Bogus, doing my punishment for not doing an actual PGP the week that DA was off. This one's been hotly debated, hotly contested by myself, this is the best I can do on such short notice. This will easily be the most controversial side C of the bunch. My irrational love for Dave Matthews' band against your irrational distaste for Dave Matthews' band. Wrestling or stadiums or uniforms got nothing on this. Now, I'm guessing that many of you think this when you hear DMB. <laughs>
3: satellite in my eyes like a diamond in the sky
6: how I wonder but there's also this don't drink the water
4: don't drink the water there's
6: blood in the- this. So let us not solve fault in So you can get a love song, acoustic magic, straight rock, or an epic cover. That's why people like me follow this band around the country or to other countries, breaking down set lists and hoping to hear a rarity. Now, DA presented this as the rise and fall of DMB. And I said, where's the fall? And yes, there have been some stumbles, like the incident where their tour bus driver dropped hundreds of pounds of sewage on people on a boat, ...going down the Chicago River. But who hasn't made that mistake before? More importantly, things like this. Guess who has sold the second most concert tickets since 1980? Dave Matthews Band. 23.2 million tickets, according to Polestar. Only U2 beats them. Not the Stones, not Bruce, not Coldplay... Not Kenny Chesney. This summer's tour, which is on a break right now, is 46 shows long. So far, they have played 104 different songs, so no two shows are alike. I just saw them at the famous Saratoga Performing Arts Center with about 20,000 other people. Amazing show, perfect weather, elite venue, everyone just having fun. This all began Charlottesville, Virginia, 1991. When Dave, a young guy, grew up in South Africa, hooked up with drummer Carter Beaufort and saxophonist Leroy Moore, 16-year-old bassist Stefan Lessard, violinist boy Tinsley joined the band thereafter, shortly thereafter. Beaufort and Lessard, they're still in the band, and both regarded as among the best at their instruments, especially Beaufort on the drums. Tinsley left the band after some controversy a few years ago. And unfortunately, Leroy died more than a decade ago after an ATV accident. So the band right now includes Rashawn Ross and Jeff Coffin on sax, horns, etc., legendary guitarist Tim Reynolds, and the newest member, Buddy Strong, who has given the band a whole new dimension on keyboards. Tim Reynolds, by the way, that's the guy whom Dave plays with in Cancun every February. The trip that my wife and I have now made twice, much to Sean's chagrin. But again, tell me what's not to like. Tropical beach, endless drinks and food, nonstop parties, and your favorite music. Music. Now, I guess this is side B of side C as we continue to talk about Dave Matthews with a fellow Dave fan. You hear him all the time during the DA show. It is the one and only Greg Caserta. It's good to see you again today. Thanks for hanging
3: out. It's always good to see you. And uh, this is something that you and I both hold very near and dear. So that's why I'm thrilled about this. A
6: public thank you to you for helping me hold down the fort in this building because... It needs to be done. But my first question to you is, why does it need to be done? What's your theory? And it's not just here. I feel like it's everywhere. Why do you think there is such particular backlash to liking this music and this band? Because everybody's got something. Everybody likes somebody. Everybody likes this type of movies. Everybody's got hobbies. And I feel like a lot of them are just left alone. That's That's what he does. That's what she likes. No big deal. But people seem to be bothered by us or anybody liking Dave Matthews.
3: Band. And, and it only throws fuel on the fire for me and you. So you and I will talk about it more and we'll just incorporate it into conversations just to irritate people in the newsroom. Right. Uh, you and I have done that more frequently lately, but even natural and, conversations and people and like chime why. in are like, what? Stop it. My theory is, is the reason why these commoners out here don't like Dave Matthews' band is the same reason that I don't like Fish or The Grateful Dead is because I associate that music with damn dirty hippies. (laughs) And that's what I think people like that... This sounds scientific. This is what they lump us in with, is they kind of mesh those all together. Your hippie jam bands with, you know, tripping a little bit and doing drugs, and they don't really grasp the full extent of it, but I think it's just, it's not being comfortable with things you're not familiar with. So
6: you haven't heard the first half of this, because nobody has at this point as we're sitting here recording this. I I started with what I think is part of the actual problem, at least in my head, is that people have not kind of, like, evolved with the band. Like, when you say Dave Matthews, they still hear songs from the mid-90s and the late 90s. Like, I played a clip of Satellite. That's, you know, one of the original huge songs. Ants Marching, you know, so there's those songs. And if that's still what you're basing this band off of, to me, you're doing it wrong because there's obviously just flat-out newer songs, but there's different songs. There are songs that are straight rock songs that are angry, yelling sometimes. There's covers... There's other sweet, soft love songs. And I just think that if you're giving them, if the only thing you're remembering is like what you listened to in the college bar in the late nineties, you're kind of missing the point on the whole thing here.
3: Yeah. And then why even like bands, if you're not going to follow along to their new music, like Foo Fighters are as relevant as they've ever been. They've done music since 95 when their first album came out. Pearl Jam, still one of the hardest tickets to get. They've been doing it just as long as Dave has, if not a little bit longer. Like, they're still making new music, and their fans are following with them. But yeah, you're right. People are still caught up in that mid-'90s thing where it was college radio music. They still think there's a violinist in the band, even though he hasn't been around for the last six, seven years. I just... What I said to uh, Cell a couple of weeks ago, a couple of days ago, is, you just got to go to one show and tell me that you don't have a good time when you leave. And I just... I don't think people can realistically say that if they go to one of his concerts. Now, and I'm going, I'm going to see Pearl Jam
6: next month at Madison Square Garden. That's my second favorite band. And they were like, I love them before I love Dave. And then Dave has jumped past them. If you and I were having a same Pearl Jam conversation, there wouldn't be the same, uh Eddie Vedder sucks reaction. So I still am just perplexed by, like, it's okay to be indifferent, like, I have friends. You've mentioned fish. I've got friends who will spend the entire last week of December at the garden through New Year's Eve at 17 straight fish shows. I don't want to do it, but I don't think that they're dopes for doing it. But you and I go pay good money to see these, these guys play in Mexico, drink for free, eat all day long, party. Everyone's in a good mood. And somehow we're idiots.
3: Yeah, and I think part of it, too, is the community aspect of it. Like, the people that you meet at the shows are cool. Like, yeah, you're going to run into the occasional stoner who's a little burnt out. But, you know, the worst thing that happens with that guy is he has a long-winded story that goes nowhere. And then you see him asleep in exactly. a lounge chair yeah. as you're going into the show I, later. Yeah, just right on the blanket, just yep. chilling. Uh, but the people are cool. I, I think, going back to your Pearl Jam point, I think it's cooler to be a fan of Pearl Jam. Right. I, I think it, I think it's more hip. Because I still think that they're too alternative. I think Dave is still too alternative. They're not mainstream enough. They're not commercial enough. Uh, they're a little too quirky and a little too out there for the traditional music fans. So, I again, I think a lot of the hate is misguided because they're not seeing the whole picture. And, again, I just ask one thing. Just go to one show. And I'm not saying you're going to listen to his music moving forward but you're going to go to one show and I guarantee you'll put it up there in some of the best shows you've ever seen.
6: Where did this all start for you? Do you remember the first time you heard them or where you like really got hooked? Do you do you know your kind of personal history?
3: I do. So, I remember my sophomore year of high school. I had a group of friends that left school early that day to go to the Central Park concert. Okay. That was in 2003. And I remember my friends leaving. It was a group of guys my age and then he had an older brother That was a year older than us, and they all went. It was like this giant caravan. They all went to Central Park. I was like, all right, that's pretty cool, I guess. And then it took me a couple years later to my senior year of high school to finally go see him at the Garden. So that would have been December of 05, and it just kind of went from there where I would go see him locally whenever he was around. I would make those two trips to Camden, went to Randall's Island. Yeah, I was there for those. Been to Virginia, been to Hershey. So did the local thing. And I've probably been to upwards of 30 to 40 shows at this point. And like you said, the Mexico thing is, that to me is the greatest concert experience anybody will ever have. If you see any band in Riviera Maya on the beach, it's the greatest thing ever.
6: And the other part of that is, because Sean on the show, listeners have kind of criticized that, but when when Dave is there the week before, there's a Brandy Carlisle and female rocker show. Dave leaves and Fish comes in for a longer time. There's a country batch of songs. And Brad that, Paisley does right. something there. There's another one that has a catchy name. That I think it, And recently there were like bands, rock bands from the 90s that spent a weekend down there. Like this is a little cottage industry within the music industry. So Dave and Tim have a spot. It's not, but acting like they're doing it and it's their own thing and it's just us, like... This is, like, nah. what they do in this area of Mexico for, like, a nine-week stretch in the winter. It's a great idea. Whatever your favorite music is, watch listen to it by the beach while you're getting hammered.
3: Yeah. it's You and I have had a good time there. You go with the missus. I go with my little brother who has since lapped me in terms of fandom where he's gone to Washington State. Yeah. He's been to the Gorge on two separate occasions. Uh, so, yeah, it's been a big part of my life. I kind of go through phases with them where I'll stop listening when I'm home. And then there's other times where I'm listening nonstop if I'm in the car. So it's uh, it's cyclical, and uh, it makes people here sick, and that makes you and I very happy. Yeah. Uh,
6: I got to point out, my, for me, I was already in, and I didn't know it at the moment, but one of my first shows has arguably the number one moment in Dave Matthews' band history. I was at this giant stadium show where they were playing one of their most popular closing songs, Two Step, and it started thunder and lightning. And it was almost like the weather was in tune Hmm. with the song where the drums came in, it was pouring rain. I mean, it was just, it was mayhem.
3: So that would have been what year? That is...
6: I'm terrible. If it happened last year, I couldn't even tell you it was 2021. Right, you, were high, 2000, you were high school? I, no, college. You it was college. 2000, 2001. Because it was back-to-back years at Giant Sim that I saw them early on in my, like, real legit fandom. And I always forget which the year was. But it was when they had an anniversary compilation, the fans picked it the number one song. This was their 20th anniversary, so, like, you know, 11 years ago now. And it's one of the, on the short list of like mega Dave moments. And I, and just I don't know that to be story. There. I wasn't familiar you know, with that oh, story. Yeah, man. So I've
3: never heard that version. Yeah. I don't, I don't know any of that.
6: And the, so there's a couple of spots where you can find it. Um, and you can hear the, you, the, the recording has been officially released. And then there's some fan video and some state, you know, stadium video of the performance. And it's like special effects. The thunder and lightning just fit the music perfectly times when the song starts like it's you couldn't is have there done it
3: video of it or is it just audio
6: uh there's so there's a there's good quality audio the video is not i don't know why the band hasn't released the video that they put on the boards sure. in the stadium but i've never seen a good quality video but the audio is great
3: and then another aspect of it let's not forget is i'm a huge springsteen fan that's probably my number one band all time okay and i've started going to concerts by seeing him And again, probably two dozen shows, but it it got out there that they were gonna have a tour next year. And when tickets went on sale, they were next to impossible to acquire. Mm -hmm. I've never had that issue with Dave Matthews band. If you want, you can still go get lawn seats for 35, 40 bucks. You're not paying a hundred to two hundred dollars for upper level seats. So they're still representing the common fan, and not all bands can do that. Like Pearl Jam's a tough ticket, it's expensive. Springsteen, The Stones, U2. Uh, not that they're not great bands. They're some of the best, but they're also unaffordable for a lot of people. And as I mentioned in the first half of this, the second most concert ticket
6: sold since 1980, Dave Matthews. Mads. I did
3: see that. Second to U2. Yep. And after you broached this with me talking about doing this a couple of days ago, I happened to see it that day. And I was like, well, I could just point to this, and there's all the evidence you need. I mean, the numbers back it up. All right. Well, I'm glad to have you in this fight,
6: and I appreciate you checking in Always with us today. Brother. You're the best, man. I'll talk to you again soon. All right. That's Greg Caserta, and that's me, and Bogush and Side C on the rise and not fall of Dave Matthews, Band. <laughs>